Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday afternoon, I guess, and... uh, I'm just going out of order, whatever strikes me first. I'm going to do the Parsha today, with your permission. Um, today's Parsha podcast has a sponsor. I don't have one for the Haftarah yet, so I hope somebody will step forward this week um, and will undertake to cover the Haftarah podcast. But uh, the Shulchan family, Sidney Shulchan, the brother of the late member of my show, Jake Shulchan, well beloved. Uh, Sidney Shulchan in Florida is the sponsoring and his family sponsoring today's Parsha podcast. Uh, I know the Shuklin family is, Sydney has for his mom and his dad coming up very soon to the uh, yard sites. I just have to remember it from Jake. Uh, so his mother's yard site is Erev Rosh Hashanah, Sidney Shuklin, who I remember very well, very wonderful person. My father were very good friends. Um, and his dad is Shana Rabba. Right. Um, you'd be Yeshua. So let me, um, first of all, thank the Shulchan family. And second, we'll say to the Neshama Shadav and we thank them for the uh, sponsorship opportunities. As I said before, I hope others will follow this week. <laughs> now, let's just r- jump right into it. This week, of course, is the Tochacha and uh, all the curses and all. It's not all that's in the Parsha, but that's a biggie, right? Truth is, you don't get to the Tochacha until Shishi, but then it hits you over the head like a two by four. And um, what can we say? We all seen the Tocha happen over and over again in Jewish history. As I say all the time, I don't know why all these things happen exactly, but it's kind of weird that it does. Um, I've said many times, people approach me, especially when I was younger, I would go to libraries and have a yarmulke on, every nut comes along to you and people say, oh, I don't believe in the Holocaust and this and that and the other. I don't believe in a God that could cause the Holocaust and that sort of business, which is an article of liberal faith that you can't believe in a God does anything wrong. Um, but that's not the Jewish position. The Jewish position is, for better or worse, there's God who gives the blessings and also who gives the curses, like you have in this week's Parsha. <clears throat> and everything that they describe in the Torah of today, which is very vicious and horrific, did come to pass not that long ago. And I'm sorry to say, but you know it's true, that there's a ton of people out there in the world who would like to do it right now. They would read this uh, Parsha Kisavo and say, yes, yes, that's good, that's a good idea. It's a terrible world. As a matter of fact, that's what leads me um, to draw attention right away to the very end. <clears throat> the Tochacha, of course, is the rebuke. And this is a speech of Moshe, right? not of God. This is Moses speaking. Remember, he's about to die, so he's trying to give an admonition to warn the people, don't do this, otherwise bad things will happen. Like a father who's looking at his kids, and he sees they're a bunch of losers, and he says, if you make this and this mistake and invest in this and hire this person, your business will run into the ground. When I was a kid, you used to see it all the time. Um, so he's giving them all the warnings. Don't go and go off the derrick, as they say today. Otherwise, it'll lead to all these terrible results, <clears throat> including the defeat, cannibalism. I mean, you got the whole nine yards over here. It's There's no horror 
that's left unmentioned in the Torah. I just don't want to go through it all, make it too depressed. But you can read it. <clears throat> but the question is, uh, is this Moshe Rabbeinu just venting? No, it's just letting off steam? Which is perfectly possible. As I just said before, did Moshe write the whole book of Dvarim out in his mind and then deliver it as a speech? No. He spoke what was on his mind. I don't know who recorded it. I mean, I'm asking you good questions of Bible scholarship. The whole book of Dvarim is, in the end, a literary work. So, the firm answer is, after Moshe gave his whole speech, which may have included more stuff than we see in the book of Dvarim, God told him, all right, I like what you said, but of course it needs an editing job. And therefore, here's how we're going to write it. So it could be that the Tochacha <clears throat> that Moshe delivered this whole rant was twice as long as what you read. But God, the final editor, said, this part's going in, that part's going out. What I just told you is the from party line. You get it? It's a speech of Moshe, but the final edition is what God does. This is familiar to anybody who's ever written a book or anything published somewhere. You know what I'm talking about. When, you know, you're in the hands of the editor. Now, sometimes an editor does what we call light editing. And just cut, touch up your language, a few uh, question marks and commas and pieces of punctuation. And at other times, <clears throat> the editor says, you know, I, didn't, I don't like the way you wrote it. I'm going to rewrite it this and this way. Which may or may not conform to what the original guy had in mind. I hate to say it, but I've done both in my life. <laughs> there are times I've been the writer and then screwed up by the editors. And there are times that I've done... The shafting as an editor in different capacities. So I know both sides of that equation. When we get to the book of Dvarim, especially something like Kisavo, very rhetorically very powerful, I repeat, very vicious, um, we have the final edition, which is in the Chumash. That's what God told Moshe to write. And, you know, Moshe might have said, I guess, I didn't say it exactly that way. And God said, listen, you just write it the way I'm telling you. <laughs> you know, write it the way I'm telling you. And that's what we end up with. And it's pretty bad. So the reason I'm saying that is because this could have been this Moshe venting, in which case, like anything emotional, it might have had a literary form. If I start screaming at you, I'm not necessarily eloquent. I'm just uh, screaming. But by the time this is over, it's an eloquent document. The reason I'm raising this is because how do you look at the end? Because my attention was drawn today, is Monday, but I like to hop around when I can. And I finished the Shnai Mikabeko at by this morning. And therefore, not long ago, I saw the last part of the Tokacha. And that's what caught my eye and made me think I'll say a few words about it today. And the end, is it a peroration or is it just the end of the rant? Is it just the end of the screaming? And Moshe says, and, and you and you get both flavors if you take the trouble actually to read the words of the Torah closely. Okay? And so he says, you know, after going through all this stuff, 50, 60 psukim, and possibly 59, God will give you heavy blows. I mean, he just told me about a bunch of heavy blows. This is Moshe just like, you know, repeating himself from emotion. Terrible illnesses. And you'll get what you all the plagues of Egypt, you know, 
And Moshe's like, almost, it's very human, you know. It's almost like at a point, like, I don't know what else to say. Right? What I just screamed at you is not the sum total of all the possible ways that God can punish you. Well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> right? Even things that are not written here. Now, I'm just screaming here at you, coming up with what I can think of. You know, the sky will close in, you'll eat your children, you know, your land will be given away, you go into slavery. That's what comes to me. But there could be other stuff as well. You understand? There are things that are not written here that I didn't come think of. I'll give you an example. This is obvious. Moshe Ben had never heard of gas chambers. You know what I'm saying? He said, well, don't say this wasn't predicted. He said, well, where's where's Hitler in the Toko? You know what I mean? If you want to get down to that level of specificity. Oh, here it is. Even things that I'm not writing down, Hashem can come up with to punish you. Well, that's great. Okay? And he says, And your numbers will be radically reduced. It's a, ba- this a very, very basic, sad feature of Jewish history and the Jewish present that we're always numerically very small. You don't need me to tell you that theoretically the Jews will be a lot bigger. And, you know, we actually, this is a tragic, we actually were on an upswing in the 17 and 1800s, especially the 1800s. People have not properly evaluated this. For some reason, what you and I call the 19th century, which to tell you the truth in the Jewish calendar is its own century. The Jewish calendar, of course, marches to its own drummer. And so with Jews, the beginning of the century is the English year 40. Is that correct? Like 1940 was the beginning of 5700. 1840 was 5600. So the year 5000 from the creation world, I'm talking about the Jewish calendar, was the year 1240 AD, 1240 CE. Right? And the year 6000, I'm sorry, the year 4000 from the creation, as we reckon it, was the year 240 CE. So it's a 40th year of the English calendar. It's the first year. The 40th year of the century of the English calendar is the first year of the century of the Jewish calendar. So if we look at what we call 5600, now we're in Tufshin Pei Aleph, about to be Tufshin Pei Base. But let's go the previous century, right? The century where, um, let's say, the Shulchan parents were born in, which was before 1940. Get what I'm saying? So, I don't know why, but this is just interesting, that between, in the year 5600 to the year 5700, in other words, from the year 1840 to 1940, for some reason, the Jewish people had a baby boom, the like of which I don't, I've never heard of. Let's go back to ancient Egypt, you know, with the Rashi and everything. Because if I remember correctly, you can look it up on the online. Look at the numbers. Between 1840 and 1940, I think it goes like something like from 3 million to 16 or 17 million or 18 million. Something like that. 3.5 million to, to 17 million. Something along those lines. An extraordinary population expansion. Which is why you still had millions of Jews left during Europe by the time Hitler came along. But you also had millions of Jews that had left and gone to America and other places like that between 1840 and 1940. Yeah. So for some reason, this was the big century. But then, as we all know, came 1940, 
and then they killed six million. And the baby boom stopped. And between 1940 and 2021, what am I saying? Between 20 and 20, you know, till last year, over the next uh, seven, 80 years now, uh, there has not been a baby boom. Uh, we're roughly holding where we were in 1945. And uh, Vanessa Oftenham said, Mr. Part, Mr. said, your numbers will be smaller when they were once bigger. So you and I, in my lifetime, and the lifetime of my parents, and Sidney Shulkman, the lifetime of his parents, have experienced two demographic worlds as far as the Jews are concerned. One going up, 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 and then the other one not. Okay? So generally speaking, you have zero population growth among most Jews, certainly in the West, with Israel being a little bit better. And it ain't all because of the Hasidim or something like that, as a part of it, but it also, one of the good things about Israel, Israel has its good stuff, it's got its bad stuff. One of the good things is that there has been overall, and I don't know the exact numbers, but there's been overall a, um, you know, a um, increase in the population uh, in a healthy way. Okay? Uh, people know it in, in a healthy way. And as a matter of fact, somebody sent me the other day, was it Moshe Levy or somebody? That, um, I don't know if I believed it. Yeah, here it is. Uh, is the Messiah necessary for Israel's growth? And he sent me some um, uh, uh, thing from something called Israel's projected growth. I'm looking at it. If you're interested in this, email me, I'll send it to you. I don't know if I believe it exactly, but it has charts. And it's going, uh, for example, it says Israel's population is going to go from 1990 from 4 million to 10 million. I don't know what that's about. Israel's population is not 10 million, unless you're counting the Arabs. And it says uh, 170,000 new people every year, 15,000 divorces, and 100,000 new apartments per year. Is that really true? This is from an engineering firm, you know, <clears throat> David Mahandas. And uh, they got all kind of charts and things like that. It's interesting. Like I said before, I don't believe it exactly, but these are demographic charts that people are projecting, and they're putting us at 9 million. Does he mean the population of Israel with the Arabs, or does he mean the population of the Jews? I don't think there are 9 million Jews in Israel. He's looking at 16 million in 2040, and 25 million in 2060. Uh, I'm sure it must mean what, together with the Arabs. has to mean. Uh, whatever the case is, um, we're now in a moment where if they would just leave us alone, as far as the population is concerned, is it going up? That's not so common in Jewish history. Usually it's the effects of the Tokachah, where it says the numbers will go down. Okay? Now, anyway, having talked about this, remember we're at the end of the Tokachah in Pesach 61, after his ranting and going on and on and on. Then it says, God will really go after you. And then comes the last Pesukim. Which to me were the ones that were striking and led me to think today. Which is that you'll be exiled from the land and you'll, then you'll be depressed. Not, you ha, you know, there's no hope for the Jewish future. And here become Moshe Gons extremely um, articulate, eloquent in a negative way. Um, 
because it says Vafitz Hashem Bcholamim, God will scatter you all over the place. Bcholamim, which which this happened. We could say hearts, but I could say hearts. One end of the globe to the other. This used to be taken figuratively, but you know, we have people listening to this podcast in Australia and New Zealand. That's where I come from, that's could say hearts. Okay. Of course they could say that about me. Uh and then comes something very interesting. You will serve there Elohim Acherib, other gods. Well, we'll see how that works. You're unfamiliar with? There'll be sticks and stones. Now, what does that mean? Rashi immediately rushes to say that Elohim Acherim, um, if I can paraphrase, means other masters. Lo avodas elohus mamish, ella ma'ale masu gulgas kamevuzar. So Rashi kind of like fudges it. You'll serve other gods in the sense you'll have to pay money to support other religions. That's what it boils down to. But I'm sure some of them, unfortunately, have to say Elohim achim can just mean other masters, and Elohim is a powerful master. That's all. Um. Of course, H of Evan doesn't fit in, but now <clears throat> so you can get tricky on how to um, how to translate. Okay, and when you go into exile, you'll never find peace and quiet, security among any of the nations. This is so interesting. When I was a kid, everybody read the passage like this: "You won't find." Peace and quiet among the going, except the USA. <laughs> I'm sure somebody else will be, except the UK or whatever. You know what I mean? No, the Anglo-Saxon countries. Uh, because the nature of Jewish history, the people, the Jews yearn for Mirgoa. There will be no place you can rest with your feet. Very eloquent. The palm of your feet will have nowhere to rest. Which means you always have to move. I understand that to me, that wherever you go, you cannot think long term. I don't care what kind of mansion someone lives in the USA, whether it's a Muncie, Lakewood, Florida, anywhere else. Nobody honestly expects that they're going to bequeath their house and their property to their great grandchildren. Because it will be in Israel by then or somewhere else. Because it doesn't happen in Jewish history that a piece of land or anything like this lasts that long in one country. The opposite. You always have to make sure your passport is in shape and that you have a plan. Okay? So, some of Farsham, this is famous, read this as a plus that you won't be able to assimilate. Actually, it's not true. Events have shown us that in many countries, including the USA, by going Mahem Targia, that they have found peace and quiet in different nations, but at the cost of their identity. In other words, they get the international, they get wiped out that way. So here in the Pasuk, Moshe is speaking about those who are going to remain Jewish. And it's going to be very depressing. Three very poetic and very hard to translate, at least to me, um, words, uh, phrases. Each one, two words. Lev ragos, kill you in a name, da'am 
which are fascinating. Okay? Which are fascinating. If you, for example, uh, you're looking at a different translation, Lev Ragos, you know, Paul Dari Kaplan. Usually he's pretty good. Well, not so great. He said, but Asana Shem Lev Ragos, Ari Kaplan said, God will make you cowardly. That's not what Lev Ragos means. Maybe. By tear gods, you know, tremble. But Ragos also means angry. God will give you a Lev Ragos. An angry nature. It's very suge- suggestive, you know. And then it says, Kilian and Ayim. That's even better in terms of being ambiguous. He says over here, how do you translate Kilian and Ayim? In the old-fashioned King James stuff, they always used to translate, which is not bad, you know, I mean, in their way. In the regular English translations, the Geish translations, they'll say, God will give me an anxious mind, uh, failing eyesight, and a soul to despair. Eyesight to fail, failing eyesight. Killian and Ayan. Well, a Killian is destroyed and an Ayan is eyes. I mean, I get that. But we also know Killian and I means you look at longingly in depression at something. But it's very powerful in its suggestiveness because it says the lave, of course, is the heart, but the heart is the mind. And the eyes are the eyes, the vision. And saying the Jews will be in different countries. But they won't be able to make intelligent decisions because they'll be overwhelmed by the anti-Semitism. When, th- when things reach an anti-Semitic stage, it's no longer something you can argue against. It's like a tidal wave. We've seen this again and again. And there are people trying to do it at this very moment in this country, as you know. And you can read the stories. And I'm sure you do. Of students on the campus. College is about to start next week. And they're going to find themselves overwhelmed here and there. With all kind of this Arab and other things which are just like a wave of the hatred, in which case there's no answer you can give because they're coming at it in, in, in like a tidal wave of, of hatred. If an Asana Shem Lachem to a lot of students in college who care about being Jewish, they want to be American, they want to parade it, it'd be Lev Ragos with Killian Inayim, but Daivanofish. It's a shame to say that. But are you going to deny it? Obviously, I'm not talking about somebody going to YU, where it's a Jewish, but you know, out there in the real world. That's tough. Lev Ragos, Lev is the thinking capacity, as we understand. It's not your physical heart. It's your mind. If your mind is trembling, or your mind is angry, it can't think clearly and think straight. Everybody knows, in a tough situation, you have to have cool you have to be able not to be affected by the emotions. Where did I read this? Was it Kleisenberg Rebbe? I read somewhere that when he was in the Holocaust in the concentration camp, he was with my father in the same camp in Dachau from 44 to 45. And, you know, Hungary came late. And if I remember the story correctly, he only ate kosher like a potatoes or something. I, it's a concentration camp, you can eat trafe. He told the others to eat trafe. It's a, a pekoch nevis, you're allowed to. My father ate trafe, as you have to. The story I read, if it's true, you never know what the Hasidic stories are true, but if the Kleisenberg, you can believe it. He said like this, it's not because I'm so from, 
that he believed that if you eat food that's treif, it's metamta misalev. And what that means is, literally clogs up your heart, but what along the lines of what we're talking about over here, it uh, interferes with your cold rational ability. And when I'm in the concentration camp by the Germans, I almost have to think very clearly, to the best of my ability, at every moment just to survive. There's not a from Kai thing, so to speak. It's a, it's an iron necessity of survival that I always have to make the right decisions. The Germans offer this work detail. Should I go? Should I not go? The Germans say this or that. Should I do this or that? Should I pretend to be sick today? The opposite. Should I not pretend to be sick today? <clears throat> you need, if you have a fighting chance, to be able to make the right decisions. I don't want the tray for food to be metamptomous alive to mess up my, 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 my reasoning ability. That's what they say. I myself have a problem with that story. It's a very famous story. I think it is. I think I'm saying the right way. Um, only because it's really true. If somebody's in Auschwitz, that's called metamptomous alive. And if you're allowed to eat it, and now we have a hakira. If you're eating trade food when you're allowed to eat it, as a matter of fact, when you're mitzvah to eat it, so, um, you know, is that have a negative effect on you, spiritually? But whatever the case is, in this week's Parsha, he's saying you're going to have a lave ragos. You have an upset heart, whether it means cowardly, whether it means terrified, whether it means angry, whether it means depressed, or pick whatever, um, you know, adjective you wish. One thing's clear. The emotion is going to get in the way of making right decisions. And that would fit with kill your Nainayim, which means your vision is not good. Because Nainayim, of course, have to do with physical vision. But also has to do with the vision necessary to make correct decisions in order to survive. And you'll have Lev Ragos, Moshe predicts. Uh, and they'll be imposed by God. And finally, Daiva Nafesh which of course means hopeless. Your nefesh is in diva, is, is in mourning. You're basically giving up. So basically you'll be overwhelmed by negative events and you won't be able to react properly. This is the culmination of the tocha because it's all the way in the end. And therefore you'll be terrified 24-7. Your life will always be hanging in front of you. And you'll be scared day and night, and you never have any confidence that you'll live. But we all know that, right? Your heart will freak you out, and what you see will freak you out. Now, is easy to understand. The things people saw in the Holocaust, I repeat, saw, can scar you for life. Um, that's why. I never understand. I mean, now they've given up censorship. Forget the X-rated stuff. These movies where they show you sawing people and all the junk. As a, you know, it's, it, 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 can, it can make you freaked out for the rest of your life. I myself know kids that watched them sawing off the head of that Daniel Pearl back in 2000 or so. And they never got over it because I know the, the shrinks they go to. Uh you know, what, what you can see can, can, can affect the rest of your life. Now, Moshe Abinu, therefore, is saying that in addition to the physical stuff, you're going to be hit with the mental and emotional stuff. And that's like the worst. Why? The people that suffer the physical stuff, 
which is terrible. You don't need me to tell you that. As long as they're able to hold on to their mental sanity, when the Corbin is over, and if they're the ones that survive, obviously if they didn't survive, nothing to talk about. Then they can pick up the pieces as best they can and move on. This is a generation of the survivors and all that in our time. What is somebody supposed to do if, God forbid, they lose a loved one in the Tzahal or something like that? You know, there's no choice but to pick up the piece and move on the best you can. It's terrible. But the alternative is to just collapse. The Arabs, the Muslims in general now, is fighting a terrorist war, which means it's a war for minds. And therefore, if America was defeated as they were in the Afghanistan, they're going to try to turn this into as much a mind thing as possible. Because war is an art, as well as a science. War is not only about the application of a superior force one over the other, but about all kinds of things. Truth is, the study of war is a fascinating subject, a very interesting subject. By the way, I think in my... If you're interested in this, they're putting up on my YouTube site, you know, the Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz. Uh, my team is putting up for a vi making available uh, this series I did last year called Jews and War. It was like four or five parts. These are videos. Again, in Jewish History with Rabbi Dr. David Katz. And if you do go on, make sure you subscribe. That helps me out. And, um, uh, these are the connection with Jews on the one hand and war on the other. And one of the things about war, and by the way, sometimes the great generals win by the judicious application of superior force at point of contact. That's one way of winning. Another way of winning is to cut off the enemy supplies. You see some elegant generals win the war that way. They're not having to fight much. Right? You you win by getting the enemy to cave in. As Clausewitz said, you want the other side to give in. But you do without losing a lot of casualties by taking away the supplies, cutting them off from their base. Um it's interesting, you know, like I say, if you study war as an art, um you can see that pulled off sometimes. In America, we don't have such a long tradition of that that I can think of. We're more like the blustery type. On the other hand, you had Rosecrans's uh, Tullahoma campaign in the Civil War in 1863. They simply drove the Confederates out without firing a shot by cutting off of the supplies. And the third way is um, by scaring them. Which is why Tchilas Nefila uh, Niso Gamora said that you can terrorize everybody and the whole army will collapse from a panic attack. Uh, that's why we say, We don't want you in the army if you're going to cause everybody to get scared in a minute. Because then it'll make a, 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 a panic attack and you lose without having fought a battle. Right? So, the terrorism war, wherever it is, is always based on the hope that you can win that way. And tell you, choose the Taliban one in Afghanistan that way. Um, 
Now they're going to try to turn that into a thing to get at the mindset of the Jews and the world in general, and the state of Israel in particular. And they're going to hope that as a result of their success in Afghanistan, mark my words, I hope I'm wrong. I always would rather be wrong, but I don't think I am. And they're going to try to make it in Israel should be Lave Ragos, Kill Yonayim, Daivo Nafish. They're going to try to impose that the people in Israel should say, now, the counter to this, of course, is to say that this is Minashamayim, and therefore, if you pray and do all the as best you can, you do the miss as best you can. The Rabbanish will protect you against that, and we've I've seen that happen many times were situations which objectively might have caused the Jews or the Israelis to get depressed didn't work that way. I think I've spoken about it here, I'm sure, numbers of times. And it can go the other way also. Something that theoretically should be a victory, they can make it that you get depressed. The best example I can think of offhand in my lifetime was the Yom Kippur War. Where Israel actually, I'm talking from a military perspective, Israel won. Certainly with the Syrians. The Egyptians are a little more complicated if you want to speak in military terms, but let's talk about Israel versus Syria. We busted them. Now they surprise attacked us. They caused a lot of damage. All that is true. And is Israel's fault? All that is true. But by the time the war was over, Israel smashed the Syrian army, reconquered the Golan Heights, and actually invaded into Syria proper. And so from a military perspective, Israel got pat itself on the back. And if I remember correctly, the casualties, the dead, was something like 800. Which, of course, is a lot. I'm not, you know, making the light of the life of any Jewish soldier. But I'm speaking in relative terms. <clears throat> there are two countries that had a war in which Israel was the one that surprised attacked. And Israel won with less than 1,000 dead. Israel said, oh, we're pretty good. The country was swept by tremendous pessimism and depression. And I do understand why. I, I respect that. But it was an example where the mind game can be successful. The Arabs didn't go around and say, well, we surprised them, but they beat us, and look how dumb we are, therefore we stink. No, they, no, 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 they didn't do that, right? But Israel did. So today, this is more true than ever, because you have the internet and the other things which the enemies of the Jews use all the time trying to undermine us in the sense that Moshe Rabin is talking over here. Uh, I call your attention to this because to me it's very striking in this week's Parsha. And it's because we always hope that having read this Parsha where Yod said this, that won't happen. Right? It won't happen. Which is why we always say Tichle Shana Klozel. They organize the laning in such a way they always read the Tochachah before Rosh Hashanah. So they should, you know, go go out with the old bad year. Which is an, an attitude as much as anything else. What do you mean it should go out with the old bad year? We're not going to get depressed. We don't get pessimistic. Aye, there's room for pessimism. Guess what? There's always room for pessimism, baby. Jews are great at this. Israel could be pessimistic since 1948. But pessimism... The kind of thing that Moshe Bain is describing in this week's parsha, 
can just destroy you without anything else happening. And we've seen it, you know, in, in, in country after country, most recently the Soviet Union. So we can't allow this to hit us. So we read the Parsha, <coughs> strikes me, to keep in mind that in point of actual fact, a Yid is supposed to be optimistic. Not arrogant and self-righteous, but nevertheless optimistic. All the mitzvahs are organized around the idea of an optimism. Uh, the very notion of blowing the shepherd to confuse the satan is fundamentally an optimistic kind of notion. The davening is fundamentally an optimistic notion. And ultimately, the state of mind of the Jews knows the optimism that the Jews have been able to display in every generation, despite all the stuff that is associated with Kisova that we've seen happen again and again, that is the secret to, to our survival. If you think it's true, I just said something very profound. At least I think I did. With that, I wish you, once again, I want to thank Sidney Shukman and family in Florida and the rest of their family, and uh, bid you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.